Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. All right, rooted, right? That's where we're at, week 152 of rooted. Feels like it. We've been in this for a long time, right? Since January. Uh, the concept is this. If you haven't been with us, you're online with us for the first time. The concept is this. is We want our church to be rooted in the rhythms, the habits, the spiritual practices of the very first church. I mean, the, the original church, the, the first century church, because they experienced this explosive growth in the church. And you know what caused that explosive growth? It's right there in your notes. I wanted, didn't want you to miss this. It's the evidence that the resurrection was super clear. I mean, the people who saw Jesus, hundreds of them who talked to Jesus after he came back to life, the, the evidence of the resurrection was super clear and they just went and told his story. The, the second though was they were super bold. They're like, let me just tell you about Jesus, like what he did to my life. They told Jesus' story, they told their story. And the third is just this, is that <laughs> the Holy Spirit just changes people's lives, right? I mean, here's the promise. If you go tell your story, your faith story, Jesus' story to people who don't yet know, God promises I will empower that story to change people's lives. Do you really believe that promise? That's what we're going to talk about today. Here's reality. You and I stand on the shoulders of those people in the first century who were bold enough to tell the story of Jesus. We stand on their shoulders. I want to introduce you to somebody um, who we also stand on his shoulders. This photo is my friend Glenn, Glenn Woodworth. Uh, When I first became a lead pastor here at Church on the Hill, uh, we had a small group of us that would get together at 7 o'clock in the morning every Sunday morning just to pray together, read a psalm, and we'd pray together. And Glenn would show up. A lot of the other guys were either elders or or on staff, but this guy would show up. And he would pray with us every Sunday morning. I gained so much encouragement from this man. And this last week, Glenn went home to be with the Lord, passed away. And uh, you may have seen him around this church. You see him walking, last couple of years, walking with his walker, all right? Glenn has been here for more than 20 years. And uh, I just wanted you to see this guy. And you might not know his story, and you might not know that he's been a pillar of this church for the last three decades or so. And so I just wanted you to know that. And this morning, I want to pray for his wife and for his kids and for his grandkids, um, that God would give them peace and comfort. Um, Important person. I didn't want to let that moment slip by without just a shout out and acknowledgement to that. Let's pray for just a moment. God, I just want to pray for Glenn's family. And I pray that your peace and your comfort will be with his wife and his kids and his grandkids. And I thank you, God. Glenn is not a perfect man, never was, but today he is. But he is a man who really, I think, walked in a way that you would be um, proud of him. And I thank you that you greeted him this last week with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so, Lord, thank you for the time that we got to have him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, switching gears here, Acts 15, right? 
And because we believe in tattered Bibles at our church, we don't talk about the Bible, we talk from the Bible, okay? So open up your Bible. There might be some in front of you. I don't care if you got digital or paper, however you want to read the Bible, just have the Bible open, Acts chapter 15. Here's the question. There's an incredibly important story in Acts 15, and you, when you first read it, I guarantee you, you're going to go, this is totally irrelevant. It doesn't apply to us today. This is 2,000 years old. There's no way that there's like meaning in this for us today, but This is the question that this text asks. Here's the question. You ready? What is required in Acts 15 for a person to cross the line of faith and join God's family? That's kind of an important question. I mean, in in this room, sometimes we'll, we'll stop at the end of service and say, listen, some of you, you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to invite you to cross the line of faith. That means you're going to become a Christian. From Acts 15, the question is, what's actually required of you to do that? You would think it's super clear in the church today after 2,000 years, but it's not. It wasn't clear in Acts 15, and sometimes people get it confused today. So I think we're going to clarify today what it means to cross the line of faith. Now, for some of you, you're like, well, I'm already a believer. Like, why do I need to hear this message? Because it's our mission to help other people cross the line of faith. And if it's not rock solid clear in your mind, it's not going to be clear in the minds of the people who you're leading across the line of faith. Y'all with me so far? That's where we're headed today. Acts 15. You're going to find a group of people who are actually putting up barriers, making it more difficult for people to become Christians. That sounds terrible, but as we read this story, you actually might find yourselves guilty of it. Acts 15, chapter 15, verse 1, it says this. Certain people came down from Judea, okay? Jerusalem is the city, Judea is the region, to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers. Here's what they were teaching them. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, Peter, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas, they had been planting these churches outside of Jerusalem, uh, outside of the region of Judea, and who are becoming all these Christians? They're not Jewish people. They're Gentiles. They're these people who come from a pagan background, and they're believing in this resurrection of Jesus, inviting this gift of forgiveness, new life. They're becoming disciples of Jesus. They're planting all these churches, and all of a sudden, these Jewish Christians, these are people from the church, they show up and go, well, I'm super glad you're Christian, but the, you can't just follow Jesus. You actually have to be Jewish. And apparently that meant something for the men in the group. Yeah, you get my point, right? So all the men are super curious about how this is going to go, right? So Paul and Barnabas, they go to Jerusalem to sit with this council. And the head of this is, is Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus, who are the head of this Jewish council. And uh, they get there and they start bringing up this issue, like what is actually required of someone to be a Christian, to cross the line of faith? Verse five, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised, and it doesn't even stop there, and required to keep the law of Moses. You see, a good Jewish boy was raised to follow all of the Old Testament laws. And the question is, do the Old Testament laws need to be followed by Christians? And for these men who just grew up like, this is how we honor God. This is how we follow God. This is how we know God. This is how we show our loyalty to God is this. And you're just not going to require that of these Gentiles? Since when did all the laws 
go away. This, uh, this council meets in the first person to, uh, to speak up. By the way, just so we know the problem, the Pharisees are saying you have to believe in Jesus and be Jewish. In the midst of this, Peter stands up. You know, Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my, my church. One of the top two most influential believers in this Jerusalem church. He answers this question. And I'll just give you the answer and then tell you what Peter said. The answer is this. Listen, Christians are saved by grace through faith and not by observing Jewish law. Okay? That's his answer in short. Verse 8, chapter 15, verse 8. Peter speaks. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them, meaning the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them. Now, Peter likewise, he previous chapters, chapter 10, uh, he actually went to go meet with some of these Gentile believers. And when he says God gave them the Holy Spirit, if you back up to the day of Pentecost, what happened? The Holy Spirit comes down, fills these believers. They start speaking in tongues and doing signs and wonders and miracles. Peter, later on in the book of Acts, he meets with a church. When Paul and Barnabas plant the church in Antioch, there were signs, wonders, and miracles that took place. And Peter's saying this, the same Holy Spirit that empowered us in Jerusalem at Pentecost, I watched miracles and signs and wonders be done amongst this church. So if the Holy Spirit accepted us and then also empowered this church, who are we to tell the Holy Spirit he messed up? I know it feels like a loose translation of the text, but that's essentially what Peter's saying. James, he's the, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, which, by the way, that's a fantastic evidence that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Just think about it this way. What would it take for you to convince one of your siblings that you're the son or the daughter of God? I mean, they know you. They knew you when you were a teenager, right? All those things you ever did. And James, the half-brother Jesus, became this pillar in the church. He was known as James the Just. And he was convinced that Jesus truly was the Son of God. James says this, chapter 15, verse 19. He says, It's my judgment there that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Don't don't make it more difficult for people who are trying to cross the line of faith. So I want to approach this question about barriers to crossing the line of faith with kind of two different ways, okay? The first is this. If you are not a Christian, you wouldn't say, yeah, I've given my life to Jesus, asked for forgiveness, I'm not a disciple of Jesus, I'm not a Christian. If you're not, question for you, um, what's keeping you from doing that? Like, what's the barrier for you crossing the line of faith? Let's talk about it. I've got a bunch of thoughts for you. Um, maybe it's the concept, of, you know what, I'm unworthy, and you can fill in your notes. These are all in there. Write them in there. Maybe your thought is this. I'm just not good enough. Like, why would Jesus ever want me? Now, if you look at Jesus' crew, let me just give you a short list of these aren't just his disciples, but all the followers of Jesus. There was a prostitute, a crooked tax collector, a religious zealot, uneducated fisherman, and then there's Paul, who was a murderer. I'll just take that as an Amen. That was his crew. See, no one got to join God's family based off of who they were or how good they were. Salvation, joining God's family, is based on God's grace alone by Jesus' death on the cross 
paying for our sins. And the only way you can get that is to receive it by faith. It is not based off of what you do to earn it, no merit of your own. Amen? So when you say, well, I haven't crossed the line of faith because I'm unworthy. Hey, listen, you and everybody else. So don't let that keep you from Jesus. The second, though, is this. It it's, might be shame. You know, I get that if I cross the line of faith that I'm kind of joining a local community of believers, right? I'm not just kind of joining the big church family. Like, it means being one of you. And if people really knew who I was, they would not accept me as I am. Maybe you believe that because you had a bad experience with some Christians. Can I just say this? I'm super sorry. And I do mean that from my heart. I'm sorry you had a bad experience with a Christian who was judgmental towards you. But can I be honest with you? We ain't all like that. I know a bunch of your stories. And we love you guys. Regardless of where you have been, even recently been. That I think what you'll find in God's church, people who are actually filled with the Spirit of God, is that they will love you and accept you. And they will actually want the best for you. The other is this. You might say, you know, I I can't cross the line of faith because I don't understand the Bible. I don't understand or maybe don't even agree with all of the Bible. Here's a really interesting question. How How much of this do you have to know and agree with to cross the line of faith? How many of you know the book of Numbers? Could tell me anything about it. There's a lot of names in there. Yes. Do you have to understand creation, like, okay, creation, how many days actually was it? Is the earth millions of years old or is it like thousands of years old? Like how old is the earth? Do you actually have to understand that and agree with, with that, with the core group of people in order to like cross the line of faith? Where, where is that? I'm not saying you shouldn't understand the Bible. You know this. We believe in tattered Bibles. We've been wearing out Bibles since 1850. We don't talk about the Bible. We talk from the Bible. I'm a big fan of that. But how much of the Old Testament laws did those Gentiles understand before they crossed the line of faith? Apparently not a lot of them because they didn't follow any of them. Listen, learn the Bible. Understand, I mean, we have so many resources at our fingertips today, right? More resources than anybody has ever had. So really, if we don't understand the Bible, we're kind of without excuse. So learn it. But honestly, it really is about understanding what the death of Jesus meant, And the historical event of the resurrection proved that all of his claims to be the son of God who would die as a ransom for the sin of the world, paying for their sins, that evidence of the resurrection proves he was the son of God. Um, I'll I'll stop there. Maybe maybe number four is you, self-righteousness. Two words, right? Myself, I'm pretty righteous. You might say something like, you know, I'm a pretty moral person. Like, do I really need forgiveness? Anybody who says that, what they're saying is this. They're just comparing themselves to someone else. Listen, I can always find myself somebody who uh, is a little bit more jacked up than me. Right? I mean, you might not have to look any farther than down your row. They're way more messed up. I mean, compared to them, I'm doing pretty good. Do I really need forgiveness? This whole, like, righteousness thing, I'm pretty good. Like, I hear a lot of people say, like, do I, do I need forgiveness? Like, I'm a pretty good guy. And p- particularly if you saw the family I came from. Man, they were a piece of work. But me, man, I turned out okay. 
There, there is no comparison game to each other. The comparison game when it comes to righteousness is this. We're only compared to the holy creator of the universe. That's who we're compared to. Oh, wait a minute. I don't measure up. And the reality is this. Every person who crosses the line of faith, when they recognize they don't measure up, they realize they need forgiveness. And so I, I hope self-righteousness isn't, isn't you. Maybe you didn't cross the line of faith because number five, it's just you're judgmental. I don't mean to sound, say too harsh, but the saying might resonate with you. Listen, I like Jesus. I don't really like Christians, though. <laughs> I've met some I don't like, too. None in this room. First of all, I get it. But as a parent, listen, if you're a parent, you'll totally get this. If you're a teenager, you might get this. Parents, you don't want to be judged by your kid's worst moment, do you? You know, they said that thing in public or they behave like that in public. They did that one thing, made that, ooh, I can't believe that's my kid. And everyone's watching you and you're like, ah, oh, ah, oh, oh, and you're feeling this like, you just don't feel good about that, right? You're like, no, 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 don't judge me based on what my kid just did. But yet that's what we do sometimes. We look at other believers and like, oh my gosh, those people, they just did this and that and that and those Christians. And we're judging God based on the behavior at some of his kids at maybe their worst moment. I think it's important to judge Jesus based off of Jesus, but I do know this, that they will look at us as followers of Jesus. And so listen, if you haven't crossed the line of faith, faith because of that, don't let a couple people at their worst moment hold you back because if it is about Jesus, then you can receive him today. Um, let me switch gears on you. Okay? So that was all to people who haven't crossed the line of faith yet. For those of you that have crossed the line of faith, my question is this. What barriers do you put up for people who are actually wanting to cross the line of faith? And I know some of you are like, why would I ever put barriers there? No, I want them to become a Christian. Hang with me. What if you put up the barrier of rules? Hey, listen, listen. I know you're not a Christian. And I would love to welcome you to the kingdom of God, help you pray the prayer of faith. But I just want you to understand what that means, that you will have to give up this, 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 and this. And the way you talk, you got to stop doing that too. Like, instead of inviting them to a relationship to be loved by Jesus and allowing Jesus to empower that change in them, we just came at them with a list of rules. And to be honest, I don't even know if we need to verbalize it. Sometimes they get that it's rules over relationship just the way we look down at them in their bad moments. You with me? Um, another thought. This one might sound like the same, but I'll just call it moralism. Has perceived morality replaced the gospel? And it might sound like rule following, but I think moralism appears in our world to be like this elite moral group as opposed to a group of sinners who are forgiven and in need of a savior. Let me say it this way. Does the gospel ever come across as, hey, you should have, could have, like, you ought to, you really should do this? If you've ever made this statement, oh, I thought that person was a Christian, but I know they... And then whatever came out of your mouth, maybe you've created the context that the Christian life is more about this elite moral group. When the reality is, is 
we're, we're broken people who've been forgiven by God, and he's putting our lives back together into this new life. I'll ask it this way. Is the good news good news? When you tell Jesus' story, is it good news? Because if it doesn't sound like good news, you might got the gospel wrong. Third thing, maybe you put the barrier of an agenda in front of the gospel. This is super relevant today. Have you ever thought, how can a person be a Christian and still vote that way? Come on. Some of y'all put a political agenda in front of the gospel. There's no politics to it. It ain't a donkey, it ain't an elephant. It's the Lamb of God. That's why I don't talk about how to vote. Because it gets in the way of people hearing the gospel. Yet churches today are divided into red and blue. Can I just be, oh, wow, Lord, forgive me for this. Um, It's weird when you ask forgiveness for what you're about to say. So let me just be gentle. Um, In our church, because I take that stance, because I believe that the gospel is founded upon Christ and not upon a political party or agreeing with them, and I I am up for voting morality, okay? You hear me? I, I think Jesus cares about the morality of how we vote. But we as a church, I will take shots from both sides at this church because of that. So let me be super clear. You want to bring a political agenda to this place? You better start understanding what the gospel is. It's about a God who loved us, cared for us, sent his son into the world to save people regardless of how they vote. That's going to become pretty important because the church is just going to become more divided the closer we get to another political season. And if you want to chat with me about that, let's have a discussion sometime. I love you guys. Um, sometimes, maybe it's not a political agenda. Maybe it's just your personal agenda of like what it is that you want to add to the Christian life. It, un- unknowingly, so it becomes a barrier to people crossing the line of faith because they think they have to agree with you on that. Um, back to Acts 15. Here we go. This Jerusalem council, they meet together. Um, Peter, James, Paul, Barnabas, they're all together. And they write a letter to the church in Antioch explaining their position. But in the letter, they actually include four things that you're about to go, what? Like, how did that even get in there? So, these barriers, let, let me just read this to you. Chapter 15, verse 28 This is James, the letter to the church. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. So you're a follower of Jesus by by grace alone, by faith alone. And he says, by the way, for for your church, I want to ask you to, to follow these four things. Here it is. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meat strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will dwell to avoid these things. What? It's just such a weird deal. You're like, well, this is why people don't read the Bible. It feels so culturally irrelevant. Four rules. Abstain from food, sacrifice to idols. Abstain from blood. Abstain from meat of strangled animals. And abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, I I don't know. I'm assuming someone could read this and be like, Jesus, I will totally follow you, but please, please, please let me eat steak. Right? 
right? So here's what's happening. The Jewish law, right? It contained, it contained these dietary laws, where, which a lot of them were for hygiene, but it did set their community apart. Like, don't eat these things. You can go in the Old Testament, you can read all about these. Some of them were definitely hygiene-based, like don't drink blood. An animal that was going to be consumed would have to be uh, cut, not strangled, so that their blood would be removed from them. But in the Gentile culture, they didn't have these rules. They didn't grow up with this. So in their world, an animal would be brought as an animal sacrifice to a pagan temple. Some of that meat would be brought to the marketplace, then sold. These Christian Gentiles would bring it into their home. And then these Jewish believers, like Christians who though have Jewish background, they serve them this thing that they've been told all their life is defiled. And James is like, hey, hey four things. Like, could you just not do that? Like, just, can you leave the meat that was dedicated to an idol? Can you just not do that? And when you prepare your meat, like, can you, can you cut it first before you choke it? <laughs> so weird to even say that. But like, don't stay away from the blood thing. He's asking them to do this. And he says, one more thing, by the way. Um, I know in your culture, in this Greek Gentile culture, um, temple prostitution was a part of it. There was also a lot of loose um, sexual morality that was happening in the culture. And so like you, you have these Jewish believers and these Gentile believers, and they're trying to be one church. But there's so much socially offensive things between the two that here's what's at stake. At this moment in history, the, the, the thing that is at stake is that the church is going to be divided in two. There's going to be the elitist Jewish Christians who are looking down on a group of pagan, no longer pagan, Christian churches that grew up Gentile, but yet there's no crossing over them. And the very thing that Jesus prayed for it in John 17 was what? Father, I pray for all those people who will believe in me one day that they may be, yeah, just as you are in me and I am in you, Father, may that church be one. Last 2,000 years, how well have we done at that? Not real well, but in Acts chapter 15, this is the thing. He's saying this, the rules were to preserve the unity of the church. That's what he's headed towards. Number one value at our church, you know what it is? I've taught on it before. I'm not going to shame you. Crowded heaven. We want to prioritize those who are beyond our walls. When we gather together, do we really center on the gospel of Jesus Christ and make sacrifices and prioritize those people who aren't yet here? Or we do, do we do things in such a way that's so offensive or lack of understanding? Like when we teach, my goal is this. I want to take this text and put it on the bottom shelf where it's in, within reach to everyone. Because shouldn't everybody be able to understand the gospel regardless of how they grew up? I just wonder, though, if there's some things that we do. So let me just back up real quick. So what about the food laws? Are we not serving beef anymore here? I mean, well, well, <laughs> no more steak at this church. We're eating fish. I mean, what do we do with that? The blood, the strangled animals, and sexual immorality. So here's what's weird about it. Those four things, the top three, you're like, oh yeah, Jewish culture, let's do away with them. Well, if we're going to do away with those three, what about sexual immorality? 
Do we just keep it? Like, or do we like, hey, listen, we're getting the top, getting rid of the top three. Let's get rid of the fourth one too. Y'all can do whatever you want. That's our culture today. Everyone just does as they see fit. Well, you have to go to the rest of the scriptures to understand this. And so for, um, we're not going to go there. I won't have time to this. But if you backed up a couple chapters to Acts chapter 10, Peter has this experience with these Gentile believers and literally has this dream of all these animals being let down by a sheet. And God says, Peter, kill and eat. He's like, no, 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 those animals, you can't kill and eat. I know the Old Testament laws. It says, don't do that. And God's like, don't you dare call something unclean that I've made clean. He was referring to the Gentiles. Don't call the Gentiles unclean. But God declared those foods clean. That text clarifies Acts chapter 15, at least those top three rules. Are you with me? You can have as much steak as you want, all right? I know some of you are like, ah, good, let's go eat. But what about sexual immorality? Do you want some scriptures? Let me just write these down. You ready? Matthew 19. Matthew 19, four through six. Jesus clarifies what marriage is. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So marriage is between a man and a woman. Go to Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Are you getting these? Romans 1, 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. All of those talk about sexual immorality and how God says, no, 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 that will mess you up. So let me give you a suggestion. Sexual experiences outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman, it will mess you up. It will wreck your loyalty. It will wreck your satisfaction. So don't do it. The rest of the Bible clarifies, don't get rid of the sexually immoral clause in this letter in Acts 15. Are you with me? I know it's pretty quiet in the church right now. (laughs) So the primary question today is this. And by the way, I don't have time to talk more about that. If you want to have a chat about that, we totally can. But um, we got to get to the end of this. So the primary question today is this. What is required in Acts 15 for a person to cross the line of faith and join God's family? Is salvation just a person praying a prayer? Listen to me. No. It's not. Salvation is not you just saying, God, I want to go to heaven because the other option sounds bad. There's heaven and there's hell. Well, let's do heaven. What do I need to do? Pray a prayer? I'm in. And the church can make it sound like that. By grace alone, by faith alone, by the death of Jesus paying for our sins alone. But isn't there more to it than that? By the way, they took this letter to the church and they read it to the church. Um, Look at verse 30 of Acts 15. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. This is the most understated verse in the entire New Testament. Here it is, ready? The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. The men were like, yes! (laughs) Why? I don't have to call the doctor. No surgery. I can still follow Jesus. But question, today in our church, and we lead people through a moment of prayer to say, hey, would you want to cross the line of faith today? But what's after that? Here's the question. Barriers. Is there an expectation of discipleship when crossing the line of faith? Is there an expectation 
of you walking with Jesus, following him, and him changing you? The answer to that is yes, yes, and yes. You remember the mission that Jesus gave us, right? Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know that part, right? Go make disciples. Help people cross the line of faith. Receive the gift of forgiveness. Join God's family. Begin a relationship with Jesus, right? But I just, I I skipped out on half of the mission. I didn't read the rest of it. It says this, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. When you cross the line of faith, it's not a finish line. It's the starting line. Are you with me? Because some people are like, I cross the line of faith. I win. I get heaven. No, you get a relationship with Jesus. And when you get a relationship with Jesus, when your life ends, whatever you had on earth, that's what you get in heaven. What do you mean by that? If you have a relationship with Jesus on earth, that's what you get in eternity. If you don't want a relationship with Jesus and never cross the line of faith, that's what you get in eternity. Eternity without Jesus, without God, without heaven. Let me read to you three truths for you. God wants you just as you are, but he loves you so much, he won't let you stay as you are. That's a great statement. Jesus meets this woman who's been thrown down in front of him, caught in the very act of adultery, right? And uh, he says, all right, those of you that are innocent who've never sinned, you throw the first stone. People start going away because everyone realizes they're not sinless. And he tells her these words in John 8. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Well, no one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. But then he makes this statement, go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't want you to enter a relationship with him and then turn back to the old ways that we lived, right? But that doesn't mean you have to clean up your life before you come to him. God wants you just as you are, but loves you so much he won't let you stay as you are. Second point, crossing the line of faith is a doorway into a life of discipleship. Clearest statement I've ever read on discipleship, Luke 6.40. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Here's what discipleship is. It's you becoming more like Jesus. Not in saving, dying and saving people, but in you showing the character, the love, the understanding, the compassion of Jesus to people. Third thing, getting saved is not a ticket to heaven, but a life of belonging, of being in relationship with Jesus where he leads you. And the question is this, such a great question. Does Jesus have authority to tell you no? In any area of your life, where it comes to money, relationships, honesty, whatever it is that you want, Does Jesus have the authority to tell you, nope, don't do it? Because I'll be real honest, in our culture, I think we retain the right for us to decide whatever we want to do. And we're essentially saying, God, it's my life. And he's like, wait, 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 I died for that life. You gave me your life. Am I your Lord? Or was I just trying to be your Savior? I'm going to switch gears into wrapping this up real quick. The question is, what does it take for somebody to cross the line of faith, and what are the barriers to that? 
what's required for our world and our city to experience a grand transformation, I think, is this. It's for you and I to be more like that first century church who told the story of Jesus and we told our own faith story. If we do that, I really do believe that this, this valley will change. So my question to you, we'll wrap up with this, is what barriers keep you from being a bold witness? What barriers actually keep you from telling your story boldly to people and telling Jesus' story boldly to people? The first is this, people feel ill-equipped. I can't even tell my own story, much less God's story. This week in your Rooted book, you're going to get coached up an awful lot on how to tell your own story and tell the story of Jesus. You know how you get better at it? You practice it. You try it. You just delve into it. And you know what you might do? You might mess it up. But really, honestly, if you mess up Jesus' story or even your own story, don't you think God can use that? I've given so many bad sermons in my life, and you're thinking, yeah, this might be one of them. Um, God uses some of the most broken stories. The second, though, you might just feel overwhelmed. Man, the gospel, it's so complicated. I just don't. If it's complicated, you, you don't know it. Like, learn it. There's so many resources at our fingertips. The third is just immature. Like, listen, listen, I became a Christian and I can't even clean up my own life. Don't let that be your excuse. Can I just say this? I struggle in my own walk with Jesus, you guys. It is not a story of perfection. It's a story of authentically trying to journey with him. Fourth is just sometimes we're afraid. What if I offend someone? Who cares? People are offended all the time in this world, right? Now, I got to be clear on this. There are some Christians who are offensive because they're obnoxious. You know what you really mean is, whoa, 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 whoa. The only way that the gospel is offensive, and the, the Bible will say this, it's offensive to people when you say, listen, you actually need Jesus. That is offensive, right? Because the good news is that Jesus saved us. Well, from what? Our sin. So you're telling someone they're a sinner. That can be a little offensive, but that's okay because the good news is only good in the backdrop that we have bad news that we live in. Are you okay with me right now? That, that's okay to offend somebody with that kind of truth if you say it in a loving and a kind way. But sometimes they're offended because we're just mean or just tell your story. Tell God's story. Uh, fifth, critical. Maybe you were thinking, you're looking at somebody like they have so many bad habits. Like, yeah, they don't, oh, Wow. They don't deserve to be saved. If that's it, then you have a judgmentalism to you that I would honestly just repent of. Because if you think there's not a single person in this world worthy of being saved, then you think too highly of yourself. When I look at how God saved Paul, a murderous person, six, uninformed. I can't find answers in the Bible. There's a sweet tool out there if you can't find answers in the Bible. It's called Google. So many answers. Like, you just, and some of them are even true answers. Like, maybe you just doubt. Listen, listen, I've told my story. I've invited people to church. I just, they've never said yes. Then you keep praying for them. You want an interesting prayer to pray for someone? Dear God, would you bring whatever circumstances into their life that would bring them to a place of needing your help. That's a crazy, difficult prayer because what happens if God brings some real tragedy? Another thought is just, maybe you're not bold because you're self-focused. I can't do this on my own. What'd you tell your kids when they said, I can't, I can't. 
I can't. You're like, stop whining. <laughs> you know what? It's just the equivalent to spiritual whining. You can't. But God, through you, you can. That's the Christian life, him empowering it. I do believe this, and we'll end with this. We just need people, Christians, who will believe in Romans 1.16 that says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I'm going to say it again. We need people who will simply say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Your power is not enough. It's God's power in the story. We just need people to tell their story and God's story and let the change be up to God. Amen? I think our challenge in Rooted is this, to be a bold witness the way they were 2,000 years ago so that we can see the same kind of change that they experienced. If you're up for it, I can't wait to see what God will do in you and through you. Amen? Bow our heads for just a moment. I'm going to have our band come out, and uh, I want you to have a moment where you, um, you're just asking God, God, how do I respond to this? And for some of you, you, just, you need to recommit to being a bold witness for him. But for some of you, I asked you this question, what's keeping you from crossing the line of faith? And if there's anybody here, you're here today, you know you're not a Christian, I just want to invite you right now to cross the line of faith, become a Christian. Can I give you some pieces to this? And I'm not going to say a prayer that you're going to repeat. I want this to be in your own words. Just admit that you've sinned. Admit that your life is not with Jesus right now. And admit that you don't want that in eternity. And I want you to do this. You got to recognize that Jesus' death paid for your sins. He wasn't just a man. He was the son of God. Whose love was so great that he suffered on a cross, paying for everything you have done, are doing, and will do. And then I want you to do this. God, I receive your forgiveness. And that begins a relationship of discipleship today. You're not just asking him to save you. You're asking him to be the boss, the Lord of your life. And I want to give you this confidence. If that's your prayer, your sincere prayer, you receive life with him today and you receive eternal life when this life is over. So if you want to do that today, I I would just pray, use your own words right now and just pray this. So God, I, I pray for all those who are crossing the line of faith right now. They might be watching this online sitting in their living room. They could even be driving their car right now. God, would you just give them encouragement that this is the defining moment in their life? And I pray for those who are in this room, God, if they need to cross this line of faith, that they would walk it boldly. And God, we trust not in our ability to confess, but in your power to save us. And Lord, I pray for all those in this room who are already Christians, they're saved, and today is the day that they're going to commit to being a bold witness so that other people, Lord, can be saved. Would you empower them as you promise? And Lord, I pray that in this church, we would not be silent, but we would love people boldly, and we would share the truth boldly and trust that it is by your name and your power that you will change people's lives. And if you agree with that, would you say amen?